0: Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Doing all right. Staying warm, I think. Maybe someone said warm. I don't know. I might have heard that because it's it's warm outside. Um, thank you again for having me here. My name is Ron. Um, I'm one of the pastors at City Chapel, um, the church plant that we are launching in. Uh, with your your support, as well as LeGrave CRC and Zion Reformed, you three churches came together, had this dream a few years ago, saw the the need in downtown Grand Rapids, started praying about it, started researching it, and all that. And here we are today, where we're getting much closer to where this dream that we've had, uh, that that God gave us a few years ago, is finally starting to come to fruition. Um, and with that, I'd like to let you all know that we are going to be having our first preview service. Now, what's a preview service, you might ask? It's kind of like a soft launch, you could say, that a restaurant has. It's not the official big grand opening. Still working out potentially a few kinks, but, but it's, it's open to the public for everyone to come. We're having our first preview service Sunday morning, June 17th at 10.15 a.m. at City Flats, right downtown Grand Rapids. So that's June 17, 10.15 at City Flats, right downtown GR. And with that, this is an ask to all of you to help us out. Because there are so many things that you don't even realize that go into making it just like a service that we're a part of right now, this morning. So much goes into just something like this. Ask Jana, John, Josh, everyone else who's a part of it, they know that there is a lot that goes into this that, that you don't even realize. And there's so much more than just those people, few people that I mentioned that go together to, to make this. And we need your help. We need, first off, just bodies, people to be there to help with momentum going. And then when you can see it, you can actually then tell others about it and be like, oh, I now have a better sense of what's going on. I can tell you about this. Or, oh, you live downtown. Check out City Chapel. They meet at City Flats, 1015. First service was June 17. It was great. Um, We also need people for different volunteer roles, such as greeters and ushers, Uh, people for our prayer team, people that will be praying really intentionally on behalf of City Chapel. Um, So many different volunteer things that we've got a big volunteer sign-up, even besides just those three of ushers, greeters, and prayer team out there. Either Anna or myself or both of us will be out there. Find us after the the service. Talk to us. We've got some post-it notes. You can write your name, throw up on one of those that you think... uh, You you would want to help us out with, but we need volunteers because so many different things, and we just love to have different partners, especially from one of our sending churches. We would love to have that. So if you have any questions, find us um, out there. I think that's that's what I got for you this morning in a catch up for City Chapel. Once again, City Chapel first preview service June seventeenth, ten fifteen a.m., and then we'll have one a month throughout the summer with hopefully our first official big launch where we go to weekly services in the fall. But right now, June 17 at City Flats um, is, our, is our first one. We'd love to, to see some of you there. This morning's scripture that we will be reading from is out of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And many of you have, have probably heard this story. This is the story of Zacchaeus, the, the short tax collector who climbed up a sycamore tree so that he could get a better view of Jesus. And today we're going to give you the gospel through the story of Zacchaeus. And if you're saying to yourself, Well, I know the story already, then ask yourself, why is it that God is having me hear this story again? And if this is potentially your first time ever hearing this story, or if it's not that familiar to you, then you're in for a treat and hear the good news. So turn with me to Luke 19, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. He entered Jericho, he is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, this passage raises up for me three questions. And these three questions uh, I'd like to ask all of us this morning. And then at the end I have one affirmation wrapped up more in the form of an observation for all of us. But to get to our first question, we need to go back just a little bit further in Luke. Luke 9, verse 51, we find that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what his mission is and what the end of that mission on earth means. He knows that his life here on earth will eventually mean heading towards Jerusalem, which will mean his inevitable death and brutal crucifixion. And in Luke 9, we learn that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. His mind is made up. He is going back to Jerusalem. He is not confused nor under any misconception about what this means for him. And then again, he prophesies in Luke 18 the chapter right before the one we read this morning where he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. And that time in Luke 18, that was the third time that he prophesied about his own death. So he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew what it meant when he got to Jerusalem. Jesus spent a lot of his ministry on earth in the northern part of Israel, up around the Sea of Galilee. And that is where he decided and set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face to go to the place where he knew he would die a grisly, brutal death. And that is where we find ourselves today. The text tells us that Jesus came to the city of Jericho and was just passing through. His plan was to move on. The city of Jericho was really close to Jerusalem. He was so close to the finish line. He'd been traveling from really far north near the Sea of Galilee and has been making his way towards Jerusalem, and he's practically there. It's as if you were taking a road trip from all the way up in the UP and you're coming all the way back down here to Grand Rapids and you had just made it to the town just north of Grand Rapids. How ready are you to be home? You've been in the car for, what, five hours or so? All you want to do is be home. You're so close. And you get to drive in a car because remember, Jesus was walking the whole way and he's not going home He's going to his death. How ready do you think Jesus was to just get there and get the whole thing over with? I know I would be. Jesus makes it to Jericho, and the passage even says that he is just passing through. I mean, we know he was because Zacchaeus was able to run ahead because he knew that Jesus was just passing on by everyone. And Zacchaeus just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus had his face set to Jerusalem. His plan was to get to the finish line. And that's what he's going to do. Except that's not what happens. He stops. He takes a detour. He changes his plans because Jesus, even this close to the finish line, is worried about others. Even in this moment, in the last stages of his travels to get to Jerusalem, his radar was up for those around them, those who needed him and needed his help. Which gets us to our first question this morning. Is your radar up? When's the last time we had our radar up? When have we had our radar up for the needs of others? Have you ever had a radar up for the needs of others? We live in a culture and I would argue every culture since Adam and Eve ate that first fruit that has been a culture of me-centeredness, of what can I do for me, me first. Parents who have had kids or really just anyone who's ever known an infant before, you know that, that kids don't need to be taught me, me first, I want it, me. Even before we can say it, we do it. We act that. And once we learn the words to say it, we start saying it. We are people whose inner self is from birth, me-centered. And on our own, there is nothing we can do about this. There must be an outside force to come in and change us and release us from this part of us. Something to come in and give us a new self that is an outward-focused self. The only person who ever truly was outward focused, other centered, who cared about the needs of others over the needs of himself was Jesus Christ. And it is only by the power of his spirit that we can ever hope to be other centered. Our me centeredness Has taken us away from that original place that we were created and meant to be, that original place, which is a right relationship with God. Our me centeredness is just another way of of saying our sin and our sinfulness. Our sinfulness has kept us in that wrong relationship with God since the beginning, since Adam and Eve ate that first bad fruit. And the weird thing is, though, is that God misses us. Listen, this is crazier than I think you realize. Especially if you've grown up and around the church and other Christians before the simple reality. It can seem almost like a duh, of course, but it is huge. That the God of the universe, the creator of everything, loves you and misses you this is a big deal god wants to know you and to know you better and you can see the reality of this in the first question that god asks adam and eve after they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to and they went and they tried to hide from god god's first question was where are you god missed them he wants to be in relationship with us wants to know us And for us to know him so badly that he sent his son Jesus Christ here to earth as a baby, growing up among us, walking among us, showing us the right way to live and eventually setting his face to Jerusalem, going there to die on the cross for all of us and all of humanity. And all that we deserve because of our me-centeredness, our sin, that that makes us deserve Jesus took that upon himself on the cross so that we do not have to receive the due penalty of our sin. Jesus, the king of the universe, became a servant so that we could be royalty. And he rose from the dead, conquering death, which is the end result of sin, so that we in him might experience life and life to the fullest for all eternity and that we might Be once again in a right relationship with God. So is your radar up? Or are you living your life completely me centered that you have no radar for others? The Apostle Paul puts it this way when he writes in the book of Romans in chapter 12, he says, Honor one another above yourselves. Or another translation puts it, outdo one another in showing honor. He's talking about how the church, the body of believers, is supposed to interact with each other and with others. Show love and affection so much that you're even trying to outdo one another in showing love and respecting each other above yourselves. So looking at Zacchaeus, He was a tax collector. And now tax collectors in this time, when this this gospel was written, let's just say that not many people liked them. These tax collectors in this region, they were Jews working for the Roman government, exploiting their fellow Jews out of their money for personal gain. So yeah, how many people enjoy paying taxes now Could you imagine doing it then when you knew that someone who was supposed to be one of your own was exploiting you for a government that was imposing their rule on you? This sort of a person was not well-liked. And Zacchaeus, well, he's one of the top tax collectors in his area. The text says that he is a chief tax collector. So you know he's making a lot of money. This is the type of person that, when you see one of these big Fortune 500 companies go under because of corruption at the top, and everyone loses everything, except somehow the CEO makes it out with millions. And you're just like, what is going on there? He was one of those people. And Jesus, well, Jesus, we remember, has set his face towards Jerusalem. So he's definitely not going to stop in Jericho this close to the finish line, especially for someone like Zacchaeus. Except that he does. And this is because there is no one too removed, too bad, too ugly, too worthless, too sinful, too different that doesn't matter to Jesus. You are not too Whatever it is, fill in the blank, whatever bad thing you think that you are just too much of that, that Jesus doesn't want to have a relationship with you, it's not true. Which leads me to my second question. Who do you have lunch with? Now I must admit that this is not an original question to me, Um, But it fits well in the context of this this sermon. A pastor friend of mine in Holland, she came up with this, but it fits well here. And in the simple question of, who do you have lunch with? When I ask that question, I am meaning that question both literally, who do you have lunch with, and figuratively. Think back on, let's say, the the past six to twelve months, And I'm talking literally the people you've had lunch with, that you go out to lunch with, you eat with uh, during break at lunch, is that someone who doesn't look like you, maybe of a different skin color than you, doesn't enjoy the same things you like, is maybe of a different political party than you, grew up in a different area, is maybe even from a different state or a different country. Who do you have lunch with? Now, if you couldn't answer yes to any of those things that you had lunch with anyone who looked different than you in anything in the past 6 to 12 months, that's okay. Because that's in the past. You can't change that. Now, what about 6 to 12 months from now? Could you add maybe one or two people to that list who doesn't look exactly like you? Because you see, Jesus was someone who had lunch with many people who weren't like him. This move, this simple move of just having lunch with others, is actually a missional move. Sharing a meal with someone is a natural way to break down those defensive walls. And it's one thing that everyone, and I mean absolutely everyone, shares in common. We all got to eat. But Jesus wasn't afraid of eating with those who were different than him. In fact, he sought them out at times, such as in this story with Zacchaeus. This is the sort of thing that helps bridge those divides that separate so many of us in our culture today. Those racial divides, socioeconomic divides, cultural divides, you name it. Sharing meals with people to get to know them on a personal level Is the simple first step to bridging those divides. Invite people into your home and cook a meal for them, and then let them invite you into their home. Be a good neighbor. Literally, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second was was like it love your neighbor as yourself. Let's start there. Who do you have lunch with? Can you only think of people that look like you? Invite someone who doesn't look like you and have lunch with them. Learn about them and let them talk more than you the first time you have lunch. James tells us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, And slow to anger. So when you eat with someone for the first time, try listening more. And guys and girls who are thinking about dating for the first time, this is also good advice. That first date, don't talk so much. No one likes the person that only talks about themselves. Listen. Show interest in the other person. Show them that you care more about them than you care about yourself. And this question of who do you eat lunch with, I also mean this figuratively in the sense of, are you willing to be associated with people who aren't like you? I don't mean that you need to start to act like a thief or a drunkard, but we are called to be people who visit the sick and those who are in prison. How about the ugly or the uncool or the one who is probably from another country if you've ever been to another country where they don't speak your main language, it's scary. Reach out and see if they just need your help, if they just need a good neighbor. Is your radar up to see who you might need to potentially have a lunch with? What is holding you back from reaching out to others? Which leads me to my third question. What fruit are you producing? Because we all are producing fruit. But the question is is it for God or is it for ourselves? Because if it isn't for God, then it's rotten fruit. Zacchaeus, after he encounters Jesus and Jesus radically changes his life over lunch, Zacchaeus produces fruit immediately. That's how we know that his transformation is real. That, and yes, Jesus says so, but how would we know today? What I love about this story is that Zacchaeus both shows us his change is real and Jesus acknowledges it. We get both. Zacchaeus, so overcome by Christ's love for him, for Christ's willingness to come into his home and eat with him, to be seen with him, to be a friend to him, produces an outpouring of goodness. And when we encounter Jesus, our lives are changed in such a way that we begin to produce good fruit. This fruit the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. How do we know that we have come to know God and are now in a right relationship with God? By our fruit. And what I mean by that is that both our actions and our thoughts are producing good things. Are we doing things, saying things that lead others into more life, into more love, or are they hurting, tearing down, destroying? Are our actions and thoughts that of peace and kindness, or are they of division? A friend of mine the other day said that today, others will either enjoy our words or endure them. What fruit will our words produce? And that's just one part of it. Because you can go beyond just our words into our actions as well. You can go beyond that, even beyond our words and our actions, into our inaction as well. The Book of Common Prayer, which is a prayer book shared by many denominations, has a common confessional prayer that goes like this. Says, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. By what we have done and by what we have undone, left undone, what fruit are you producing? For this is the only true test we have to see if we are in a right relationship with God and if we know the Lord. Jesus said in referring to his disciples, he said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Will people be able to recognize us as followers of Jesus by the fruit we are producing? Or will we just get lost in the crowd with no fruit Or rotten fruit? What fruit are you producing? Which leads me to my one affirmation wrapped up in more of an observation. And that's that Zacchaeus was a tax collector before he encountered Jesus, and Zacchaeus was a tax collector after he encountered Jesus and started following him. And I believe that this is one of the more interesting parts of this story. Because I believe that it is the fact, the fact that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector before and after he meets Jesus. Jesus doesn't turn and tell him, okay, now you must pick up and move and go off to the middle of nowhere and you must become a pastor or anything else like that. No. Zacchaeus is called to be a faithful honest, respectable tax collector. Because the world needs more tax collectors like Zacchaeus. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes God does call people to do those crazy things. Look at the Apostle Paul or Jonah. The world does need those people who do those extraordinary things. The world needs more people like the Mother Teresa's as well. But most people And I would go so far as to say that the norm of the people we find who follow Jesus are people like Priscilla and Aquila. We find them in the book of Acts. In chapter 18, they show up for the first time. They're a married couple who are tent makers by trade, and they took in this young man, And shared the gospel with him in their homes, and he went on to be one of the greatest preachers of their time, known as Apollos. Most are like Lydia, who helped Paul and Silas by inviting them into her home when they were on many of their missionary trips. Most are like Epaphras, who the only reason he's mentioned in the Bible is because he prays a lot on behalf of other Christians. Most people are like that Roman centurion that encountered Jesus and Jesus commended him for his great faith saying that it was, a great, it was a faith so great that Jesus said, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And yet he remained a centurion, a Roman officer, after he encountered Jesus. We need more people like those that Paul and the other apostles wrote their letters to. Those saints that stayed where they were and lived out their lives for Christ there, in their homes, in their hometowns. Most of us start out like Zacchaeus. Chief tax collectors storing up wealth for ourselves because we are me-centered. Sinners just like everyone else. But when we encounter Jesus, truly encounter Him, and give our lives over to Jesus, everything changes. And yet, nothing changes. Nothing changes, meaning we're still tax collectors. We might still have our same jobs, our same friends, our same family live in the same city, eat at the same restaurants, drive the kids to the same practice, pick up groceries from the same grocery store. Everything is the same. Yet, nothing is the same. Nothing is the same because each and every one of us who is a follower of Jesus, is a Christian, has received our own call. And we have responded to it and we are now living out that call. Every single one of us. It's not just the pastors or the spiritual elite or whatever else you want to call it who receive a call. Yes, we use this terminology of a calling most in those settings. But the reality is that we all have received a calling from God. In Ephesians, Paul is writing to to the Christians in a letter that was most likely passed amongst many churches. And in this, Paul, you could say, is writing to us. And in chapter four, he writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a way, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's talking about all Christians. We all have been called And he continues on with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then ending with, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is letting us in on a little secret. That the God of the universe has given each one of us calling. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's our calling. The Lord, the world, needs more faithful tax collectors living out their calling. The world needs more faithful salespeople living out their calling. Needs more faithful mothers, fathers, teachers, doctors, businesswomen, and people, mechanics. You get the picture. The world needs more Christians called by God living out their lives in a manner worthy of that calling. In peace, unity, gentleness, patience. We need more praying, honest, whatever you are. Are you starting to get the picture that we have all received a calling? You have received a calling. So, is your radar up? Who are you having lunch with? What kind of fruit are you producing? Because we all have received a calling So let's walk in a manner worthy of that calling. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Would you please pray with me? Gracious Lord, we praise you that you have shown us the way to live, that you came here walking among us you faced all the same temptations that we face and that you were willing to be interrupted by people like us because you care for us. Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength by your spirit, Lord, to also, to widen our radar, to give us a radar for others and for the needs of others, to turn us away from looking at ourselves, Lord, because we can only do it by your power. We ask that uh, you would put on our hearts maybe that one person that we should invite to lunch or to dinner, that you would give us an extra heaping of patience to just listen, Lord, and to learn and to truly be invested in those around us and to care for them, not for our own gain, but for the betterment of them. We ask that we would uh, be filled with your spirit to produce fruit for you and for others. We pray all this in your name. Amen.